All right, well, we can get started. Um, so welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Kara Bell and I am the Public Relations Officer here at the Center for Conservative Women. I'm so happy to have you all join us this afternoon with our guest speaker, Amber Athey. So here at the Center for Conservative Women, our mission is to prepare women for effective leadership and to promote leading conservative women. Our materials, programs, and initiatives blog, newsletters, and social media communications support ideas uh, and efforts that are pro-America, pro-family, uh, support free enterprise and entrepreneurship, and we encourage our supporters and students to be active ambassadors um, of conservative philosophy at their school, within their workplaces, and within their communities. Um, if you are interested in learning more about the Center for Conservative Women, I invite you to visit our website at cblwomen.org or email info at cblwomen.org. We also email monthly newsletters um, with the latest news and upcoming events of ours. Um, so if you're interested in getting on our uh, uh, newsletter email list, um, you can also email me at info at cblwomen.org. Okay, so let's jump into this webinar. Um, introducing Amber Athey is a summer fellow of ours, Katrina Fee a rising junior at Catholic University of America. Katrina is receiving a politics major and economics minor, um, and she hopes to have a career in foreign policy. We are so uh, happy to have her here with us this summer. Um, okay, so Amber Athey is the Washington editor for The Spectator USA and the host of the Daily Caller's Unfit to Print podcast. She is also currently a Tony Blankley Fellow with the Steamboat Institute. Prior to joining The Spectator, Amber was the Daily Caller's White House correspondent and a contributor for Catholic Fifth. Amber started her journalism career at the Leadership Institute's campus reform as an investigative reporter. She received her bachelor's degree from Georgetown University in 2016 with a double major in government and economics and a minor in mathematics. Amber's work has been cited by the Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, The Atlantic, Politico, Daily Mail, and more. Amber was our speaker at CBL's luncheon at CPAC last February, where I had the opportunity to meet her, and she is an inspiration for young conservative women, particularly in the field of journalism, where she has such a prominent voice within the conservative movement. We are so excited to have her with us today to talk about the hashtag defund the police movement, the irony of the Black Lives Matters demands, and how the movement seemed to grow overnight. Please join me in welcoming Amber Athey. Well, thank you all so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this webinar. And uh, how this is gonna work is I'm gonna speak for about 40 minutes and then we'll turn it over to questions. So if there's anything I don't cover in my speech, just keep a note, you'll be able to ask it at the end. Um, I'm gonna try to cover as much as possible, but this all has happened so quickly in the past couple of weeks with the riots and the defund the police movement that there really is a ton to cover. So again, if I don't hit something that you're interested in, just let me know. Um, I wanna start with you know, how all of this really began. And that was of course, with the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I think everyone really agreed that this was an excessive use of force by Officer Chauvin, that this was an unnecessary death that occurred. Uh, there really wasn't much debate that I saw over whether or not this killing was justified, which really separated it from what happened in Ferguson a couple of years ago, um, where there was debate over the killing of Michael Brown. Um, he was found to have attacked the police officer in that case, 
and the claim that he had his hands up or was retreating from the officer when he was shot and killed turned out not to be accurate. So the debate there was a lot stronger. There was a lot more reason, I think, for conservatives to push back on whether or not this killing was justified. Um, the George Floyd death is a little bit more complicated because there is a video that shows a police officer kneeling on his neck for over eight minutes and it's you know pretty impossible to justify that. Nonetheless, um, despite the overwhelming agreement that this was a wrongful death, there have been riots, protests, looting. Um, the movement has now transformed into a statue desecration um, over the claim that police departments are systemically racist, that police departments need significant reform, and that America itself is founded on racism uh, and thus needs severe structural change. And I wanna walk through the actual facts in the George Floyd case, because even though we all agree that this is a wrongful death, we still haven't produced any evidence or found any evidence that this was a death due to George Floyd being black. Um, so what happened in this case was Floyd went to a gas station and bought a pack of cigarettes with what was a uh, counterfeit $20 bill. And the clerk at the time was a teenager. He called the police expressing his suspicion of the bill and said that Floyd appeared to be drunk and out of control. The police later arrived on scene and George Floyd initially resisted arrest, but they were able to handcuff him and he began to comply. However, when he, uh, when they, police officers attempted to put him in the police car, he began resisting again. And that was when Officer Chauvin got involved, wrestled him to the ground, and put his knee on the back of, the, of George Floyd's neck. Um, the autopsies in the case revealed that Floyd had fentanyl in his system, as well as methamphetamines. He had a pre-existing heart disease, and he had also tested positive for coronavirus. The cause of death um, from the state's autopsy was listed as cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. So what that means is that the cause of death was not asphyxiation as was found in the independent autopsy, but that the cause of death was due to the way that the officers were restraining him and that his death was made more likely by the fact that he had substances in his system and that he had pre-existing heart problems. Now, none of this tells us really anything about whether Chauvin decided to use more force on George Floyd because he's a black man. Um, what we do know is that Officer Chauvin had a history of disciplinary issues. He was also involved in a, um, a police shooting a couple of years prior where he was not charged with anything and he was, uh, people criticized Amy Klobuchar, she was a prosecutor at the time, for not charging Officer Chauvin. He had several other disciplinary reports against him for alleged excessive force, yet was never removed um, from his police department. He never lost his job. He was never charged with anything. We also know that Officer Chauvin and George Floyd apparently worked together at a bar where they did security. It's unclear how well the two knew each other. One individual claimed in an inter interview with CBS News that the two had a bad history with one another and didn't get along. But that person later retracted that statement and said he was thinking of another man and not George Floyd. So all of that is to say that there are other factors that could have been involved here that led to George Floyd's death. It's possible that Officer Chauvin is merely um, someone who's not fit to be a police officer and is known with, for having a history of aggression and perhaps even domestic violence. 
and that when he gets in situations, he abuses his power, regardless of what race the individual is. It's also possible that Chauvin recognized George Floyd when he arrived on the scene, and perhaps that contributed to his decision to again use excessive force. So we don't really know. And uh, it's really difficult in all of these individual cases for anyone to say that race was the deciding factor in how this person died. And um, a great example of how we can't know this is that back in 2016, there was a very similar police killing of a man named Tony Timpa. And this was in Texas. And Tony similarly um, was resisting arrest. An officer wrestled him to the ground and held his knee on his back for multiple minutes. Tony eventually stopped responding and he later died at the hospital. So the facts in the case were very similar. Um, and what, uh, what was different though, is that Tony Temple was a white man. He was not black. And that's why many people didn't hear about this case until 2019 when a Dallas newspaper actually investigated the incident and brought up a video that showed the officer had used excessive force. Um, so despite the facts in the case being very similar, that one did not get the same national news attention and did not lead to nationwide protests and riots like the death of George Floyd did. So really the only way that we can really determine if these deaths are due to some type of racial bias or that police departments are systemically racist is by actually looking at the statistics of these um, police killings. And the statistics tell an interesting story um, because there uh, are some great uh, studies out there about the shootings of unarmed black men that suggest that they actually are killed at even lower rates than white men. Um, a lot of people will say that because um, black, so one of the main statistics is that black men are killed, unarmed black men are killed less often than unarmed white men. But critics will say, well, that's because black men are a smaller proportion of the population. And so once you control for that, you'll find that black men are indeed more likely to be killed by the police. But what that statistic doesn't take into account is the fact that black men also disproportionately commit more crimes than white men and thus are more likely to encounter police in an official capacity. So uh, police are therefore perhaps more likely to have a fatal shooting or fatal death with an unarmed black man solely by the fact that they're more likely to encounter them um, during their daily policing. A 2019 study found that 26% of civilians killed by police shootings in 2015 were black, even though they only comprised 12% of the population. Um, so according to that benchmark, more black civilians are fatally shot than we would expect. But on the other hand, race-specific violent crime, meaning who commits violent crime and is thus more likely to be um, encountered by the police, explains over 40% of the variance in civilian race. Uh, this study also did not find evidence for anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparity in police use of force across all shootings, and if anything, found anti-white disparities when controlling for race-specific crime. While racial disparity did vary by type of shooting, no one type of shooting showed significant anti-black or Hispanic disparity. Uh, and when you look specifically at the shootings of unarmed black men, you'll find that despite this claim that police departments have remained systemically racist, that they're in need of significant reform, 
the number of unarmed black men who have been killed by police has been declining significantly over the past several years. And that's without any major reform to police departments. So in 2015, for example, police killed 38 unarmed blacks and 32 unarmed whites. In 2016, just 19 unarmed blacks were killed. Uh, 2017, it was 20. And by 2019, the number of black, unarmed black people killed by police was down to just 10. Um, Attorney General Bill Barr actually talked about these statistics during an interview with PBS that was released this morning. And he indicated that out of those 10 shootings of unarmed black men, six of them had attacked the officers um, prior to the shooting, which would imply that that was a justified use of force, that the police were justified in shooting that individual in order to protect themselves from harm or potential death. Four of those shootings thus are perhaps unjustified. Um, out of those four, two of them resulted in charges on the officers and two did not. But even if we consider that all four were considered unjustified um, uses of force, that would only mean that as a black person who's unarmed, you have a 0.00001% chance of being the victim of a police shooting, uh, which from you know, my own personal um, opinion does not show that police are systematically killing black men or um, engaging in some type of systemic bias against black men when they're out policing. Um, again, that's four zeros, one percent, point zero 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 one percent. Um, but nonetheless, there have been cries across the country to reform police departments because they are allegedly systemically racist. And to me, this is just a solution in search of a problem. Um, obviously, every unjustified death at the hands of the police is one too many, but I haven't seen evidence that this is the significant problem uh, or that this is the crisis or the, you know, the public health crisis that people have claimed it is. And you'll even see, for example, the CDC and the WHO talking about the fact that racism is a public health crisis and therefore uh, hundreds of thousands of people gathering in protest is more important than the potential spread of coronavirus because they're doing it for such a good cause. Um, again, that just doesn't seem to be the case based on the statistics. Um, regarding the actual defund the police movement, they've been very unclear about their goals. So it's hard to know what exactly hashtag defund the police stands for. Um, because initially people were saying, well, do you wanna completely dismantle the police? Do you wanna take away all of their money? And some people said, yes, that is what we wanna do. But other people said, no, actually you're taking this out of context. What we really wanna do is reform the police and perhaps move some of the money from police departments to other community outreach centers or social justice centers or social workers, that type of thing. Um, but even if we go through all of these claims from the various different factions of the defund the police movement, you'll find that most of them are, are pretty bunk. So I think most people here probably agree that defunding the police entirely is an absurd idea that will lead to significantly more crime and uh, community policing from what we've seen in the autonomous zone in Seattle really does not work. Um, some of the other proposals that have been suggested are getting rid of qualified immunity. What qualified immunity means is that police officers, because they are government employees and because they um, you know, take orders from uh, government 
bureaucracy or hierarchies, they have a higher level of protection from personal liability lawsuits than your average person. And that's because the Supreme Court has recognized that police have a very difficult job when they are encountering suspects or dealing with violent crime. And so they shouldn't have to be up to the same standard of perfection as other, um, as other professions would be. Because when you're in a life and death situation, it's incredibly difficult to make sure that you're always abiding by you know, certain rights that suspects may claim they have. So this was initially implemented to protect officers from frivolous lawsuits and to make sure that officers weren't being, you know, killed or uh, increasing violence or failing to respond to violence because they would have to think twice or three times about the possibility of being sued over the decision that they made in the heat of the moment. Um, so again, it doesn't mean that police, you know, acted perfectly, but that given the situation at the time, they acted reasonably. And that means that you can't take 20-20 hindsight and look at a situation and say, well, I would have done it this way. You have to consider what the police officer was faced with in that moment. So in order for a lawsuit to move forward against a police officer under qualified immunity, what has to happen is the officer would have had to have violated a clearly established right under the Constitution. So it doesn't mean that every lawsuit against an officer who's accused of unjustly using force is thrown out. It just means there's a slightly higher standard. Um, according to an expert, a former FBI special agent who has reviewed qualified immunity, he says, quote, my own experience from reviewing numerous deadly force federal court decisions over the past 30 years has shown me that the qualified immunity defense is no panacea for cops sued in civil rights litigation. That means cops aren't just getting off all the time because of qualified immunity. He continues, the reason is quite simple to comprehend. Federal judges at the lower court and appellate levels are bound by federal court procedural rules that require judges reviewing qualified immunity motions of defendant law enforcement officers to almost universally accept the plaintiff's version of disputed material facts in deciding the viability of the defense. And an example of this he gives is one case where an officer arrived on scene to a woman's backyard. Her husband apparently pointed his gun at the police officers, so the police officer shot him and he was killed. Now in court, the police officers tried to mount a defense of qualified immunity but the wife in the case had claimed that her husband had been too weak from cancer treatments to actually raise a gun against the police officers. So the court accepted her statement as fact and continued with the case, um, despite the fact that there were other wit uh, witnesses, of course, the police officers who claimed that was not the case. So qualified immunity is not a get out of jail free card for police officers as people claim it is. Um, according to some studies, lower courts denied the qualified immunity defense approximately 32% of the time, and they only granted the qualified immunity defense in full just 12% of the time. So um, in my opinion, the qualified immunity is um, the potential downfall of getting rid of it, which would mean police officers perhaps not acting quickly enough in dangerous situations. And of course, the potential for police to be spending time and significant resources fighting these frivolous lawsuits instead of out policing the streets. Um, that is a, a bit more significant than leaving qualified immunity in place, considering, again, this is not a get out of jail free card. One of the other um, proposed 
reforms to police departments is getting rid of police unions. This one I'm more amenable to. I'm sure um, you know people are aware of the corruption that occurs in public unions. It's very much the same in teachers unions and other government unions. And there are many cases, which perhaps Officer Chauvin was one, where police unions um, defend someone who's been accused time and time again of using excessive force or not properly doing their duty and the police unions protect them instead of getting rid of them to try to clean up um, their own ranks. And that can lead to, of course, very adverse outcomes. At the same time, I would advise against getting rid of police unions entirely. And the reason why is that when we talk about who we want to be police officers, we want the best of the best. And what police unions do outside of just you know protecting their brothers is they make sure that police officers are well compensated that they're getting proper benefits they do pay to indemnify officers um, who are sued by people who claim that they used excessive force which means police officers don't have to pay out of their personal funds to settle a lawsuit um, and those are all important things when you're thinking about who's becoming a police officer because if police officers have lower salaries, fewer benefits, they're worried about getting sued, you're not going to get the cream of the crop applying to go to police academy. Um, I think it's important to make sure that we're compensating our police officers at a high enough level where people are incentivized to uh, be recruited into the force and that the people we are recruiting are the best of the best. So we wanna make sure that we're not keeping the standards so low that people who are really talented or intelligent um, are not going off to join other professions instead of the police. Um, one of the other suggestions that has been floated by the defund the police movement is requiring police to bring along social workers when they're faced with a nonviolent situation. So that means if someone is having a mental health breakdown or a drug overdose or some other similar situation where um, the call is not related to a violent crime that a person has committed. They would have to bring along a social worker. I've talked to police officers about this specific proposal and all of them have expressed concerns that in any of those situations, um, because people are not of their right mind, it can turn violent really quickly. Even if it wasn't violent before the police get there, um, th that person is very unpredictable. And the last thing a police officer wants when they're on a scene that can turn violent is to have a third party that they have to be taken care of. Um, so they're gonna have a social worker that's you know, trying to get involved in a situation that's very high stakes, and the police officer is gonna to have to protect that individual on top of themselves and their partner, and that can really overcomplicate the policing situation. So there are some other proposals as well. I think those are some of the main ones. Um, and that's not to say that every piece of police reform is bad or needs to be condemned. But just that we need to be careful about what specifically people are proposing and um, how that can affect policing. Because ultimately, if reforms are too stringent, what you're going to see is that police are basically going to be hamstrung when they are out on the streets responding to crimes and are going to have a harder time keeping communities safe. And what this means for actual community members and particularly minority community members, is that the defund the police movement will really have adverse consequences for them, particularly. Um, they'll see spikes in violent crime, and they will be the victims of crime much more often 
than um, in the current way that policing is handled. A Monmouth poll found that most people are very satisfied with the way that their local police department currently handles crime. Among college-educated whites, 73% believe that the police, that they are, uh, say that they are satisfied with the police. 70% of non-college whites say um, the same. 72% of black Americans say they are satisfied with their local police department. And 68% of Hispanic and Asian individuals say they are satisfied with their local police department. So even when you see polls saying that people believe police um, are more likely to kill black men or that they are racist, the vast majority of Americans are actually very happy with the way their police departments currently operate. Um, what's also important in all of this is what's known as the broken windows theory. Um, people have suggested that police, for example, are less tough on petty crimes or nonviolent crimes, uh, and that would perhaps prevent some of these types of interactions where people are stopped, for example, with a counterfeit bill, and then they're killed because they tried to resist arrest. Um, what the broken windows theory says, however, is that when police do um, enforce all types of crimes, even less violent or petty crimes, all crime tends to go down. Um, and this is because when people get the sense that they can get away with lower level crimes, they're much more likely to move on to more aggressive or violent crimes. Uh, and so that's sort of a butterfly effect. For example, um, the broken windows theory was employed in New York City in the 1990s and it caused the crime rate to drop tremendously. So what they did is they started enforcing minor misdemeanors like subway crimes or graffiti and that um, helps to prevent larger problems from occurring. So um, former New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton, for example, said that since 1990, crime in New York City was down 81.7% thanks to precision policing, which incorporates the broken windows philosophy. In 2016, um, the Daily Wire reported on a Quinnipiac poll that showed most Black people actually support this type of policing. Um, it was on the decline at New York City at the time, uh, back when this poll was taken, and both homicides and shootings spiked 20% over the course of just one to two years. Um, while New York City was implementing proactive policing or precision policing, murders declined from 2,262 to 333. In Los Angeles, they fell from 980, uh, 987 to 251. And in Chicago, they fell from 1943 to 413. And that's between the years 1990 and 2014. Um, unfortunately, we have already seen what happens when we tie a hand behind the back of our police officers and tell them to stop enforcing lower level crimes or try to reform the way that they police. And this is directly evident in the riots that started in Minneapolis. Um, this happened directly after the death of George Floyd and uh, what initially started as peaceful protests quickly turned into riots where we saw people looting, burning down businesses, um, attacking people in the streets, and police did not respond to those riots particularly strongly for several days. And what happened is they spread across the country and we soon saw riots in nearly every major American city across the country, including Washington DC, Seattle, Dallas, um, St. Louis and various other cities throughout the country. 
Um, so the riot spread because people were under the impression that they would be allowed to do this and they wouldn't be arrested or met with violence or met with force from police officers. Then in Seattle, we saw the creation of the autonomous zone, which was initially named Chaz and then they named it to CHOP. Um, not sure why they did that, but um, they were able to basically run police out of a precinct there. And the police, I guess, were told not to fight back or didn't have the resources in order to fight back. So they left the area. The people who were in charge of Chaz slash CHOP ended up basically creating a separate country um, where they had they would not allow police officers in, they would not allow medics in. Um, if they were accompanied by a police officer for their own safety, they had tried to create community gardens, uh, they had movie nights, and throughout all of this, what people failed to realize, of course, is that there were community members living there and running businesses there that did not consent to having an autonomous zone without police created outside of their homes or outside of their places of business. CHOP and Chaz was allowed to continue for weeks and eventually people tried to do the same in Washington DC seeing that it was successful. Um, just a couple of nights ago in DC, people attempted to create an autonomous zone and were planning on tearing down a Lincoln statue. But in DC, the police got involved really quickly. The night that it happened, um, the DC police went in and dismantled the autonomous zone, put up fencing around the Lincoln statue and stopped that from happening. And the individuals have not tried to create another autonomous zone since then. And the longer that these autonomous zones are allowed to go on in Seattle, for example, the more violent they become. Um, in Seattle, there were actually three shootings that occurred inside of the zone and police were unable to get in and respond to crimes because they were banned from the area. And again, medical professionals who tried to go in and treat people were denied access because they wanted a police escort in order to make sure that they were safe from the many people inside who had illegally obtained weapons. In a rather hilarious video that I saw, um, sad but hilarious, there was actually an individual who was shot inside of ch uh, CHOP slash CHAZ and was complaining that he was not able to receive medical help or police help quickly enough uh, because of the borders around the autonomous zone. And he was an individual who was highly supportive of CHOP slash CHAZ and I guess did not realize uh, when you create an autonomous zone and demand that the police stay out of it, they're not going to be able to come in and help you when things go haywire. And similarly with the statues, we um, saw that people started tearing down Confederate statues and you know, conservatives were mocked for a long time for warning that pulling down Confederate statues would be a slippery slope that would eventually lead to people destroying the rest of our history. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. People were free to tear down these Confederate statues. The police did not attempt to stop them. And lo and behold, they started tearing down statues like uh, St. Junipero in California. They started tearing down American presidents like Teddy Roosevelt and going after this Lincoln statue in Washington, D.C. People have suggested tearing down George Washington. And Sean King, a noted Black Lives Matter activist, has even suggested tearing down statues of white Jesus because he believes that's not an accurate depiction of Jesus because Jesus was from the Middle East. So quickly, this stuff spirals completely out of control if there's no attempt to, to keep order in society. And Black community members, in many cases, in these major cities and in these neighborhoods are the ones who are most affected by this. Um, for example, in St. Louis, David Dorn, who was a 77-year-old 
retired St. Louis police chief was shot and killed by looters when he was trying to protect a pawn shop. And of course, that's not to mention the untold damage done to black businesses in these communities um, and the economic devastation that will follow. So I was actually calling for the president to send in the National Guard and invoke the Insurrection Act, which gives him the authority to quell violent insurrections the first weekend after the riots in Minneapolis. Um, and those warnings were not heeded. And eventually what happened was this spread across the country became increasingly more violent and moved away from the initial goals of the protesters or what they claimed were their initial goals, which was um, to re reform policing and eventually somehow turned into an eradication of American history and uh, leftist anarchy and Marxism and a whole host of other issues. What all of this tells us, um, in addition to the fact that defunding the police or making too significant of reforms to the police is very dangerous, is that these riots were never really about George Floyd in the first place. I think some of the protests initially, the peaceful ones, were about the death of George Floyd, but ultimately what happened is a number of leftist groups, including Antifa, that view themselves as anarchist Marxists, co-opted the movement, encouraged violence, encouraged looting, and used this as a means to create a class and race war. Ultimately, the goal of groups like Antifa is um, to completely dismantle society because they believe that the structures in society that currently exist are fundamentally racist and evil, and therefore it's not enough to just reform them, they have to be destroyed entirely. So that's where the sentiment of taking down American president statues, destroying businesses comes from, is because they want to create enough societal unrest that they literally have a revolution against our current government and against our current system. Um, and Black Lives Matter has become pretty much inseparable from those other groups at this point. Um, they've been unable to control the protests that they started, and in many cases, they agree with lo a lot of this leftist Marxist ideology that talks about the inherent racism in America. And um, a lot of people will, you know, say that Black Lives Matter is just a slogan that means um, that you believe all Black Lives Matter, but it's a lot more than that. When you say Black Lives Matter, you are implicitly supporting this movement that has a lot of uh, political baggage with it um, that makes it a lot harder for everyday Americans to support. In many ways, it's a lot like feminism, um, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this, where people tell you that you should be a feminist just because um, feminism means the equality between men and women. But as all of you smart ladies know, feminism is also a political movement that comes with a lot of um, other aims with it, such as dismantling the fake wage gap or giving abortions on demand or free birth control and forcing um, religious people to pay for it. And all of these other um, political ends that are separate from the fact that men and women are equal. Um, Black Lives Matter is very much the same. It's a statement that sounds very innocent and something that everyone agree would agree with on its face, but when you actually dig into what the movement itself stands for, it's a lot more complicated. Um, and they do that on purpose, by the way. They do that because they want to force you to say Black Lives Matter um, to make you feel like you're supporting the movement or that you support the movement. And they use a phrase that's very innocuous and sounds like something everyone would agree with because it's easier to bring people into the fold that way. Um, amid all of this, um, the Republican Party has been um, 
pushing this police reform bill in the Senate. And you'll notice that Democrats have refused to even vote on the bill. And I think that's an indication that, um, you know, this movement is very cynical. And a lot of the goals that they've claimed to be pushing for since the beginning, they're not really interested in doing. It's more about just claiming that, again, racism is the root of Americanism, that Republicans and the GOP are evil, and all of that other stuff. And so I actually think it was a mistake for Republicans to try to um, push out this police reform bill in good faith, because again, their opponents are not acting in good faith. And it also tends to accept the progressive premise that police departments are inherently and systemically racist and are thus in need of significant reform to curb that racism. Um, I think it's dangerous to accept that premise when, again, as the statistics show, that simply is not true. And what does this all mean for women? Well, I think it's quite obvious. Women um, need to be protected. It's a lot more difficult for us to protect ourselves if we are the victims of violent crime, particularly a violent crime that's committed against us by a man. We simply have a harder time being able to defend ourselves because we're smaller, we're not as strong, and we rely on the police in many situations to take care of us. If we're defunding the police or moving their funding elsewhere or making it so that they can't properly respond to violent crime, women are going to be significantly hurt by that. Um, it's also a great reminder, by the way, that the Second Amendment is incredibly important. Um, people have repeatedly claimed that, uh, or anti-gun people have repeatedly claimed that people don't need AR-15s or the Second Amendment because if anything goes wrong, the police will help them. But now those same people are pushing a movement that is going to make the police significantly less effective and less able to respond to crime. Um, so it's a great example of why we support the Second Amendment and why every woman and really every American should make an effort to learn how to shoot and to arm themselves if they feel comfortable doing so, so that they're able to empower themselves in the face of a movement that wants to disempower them by defunding the police. People will call you a bootlicker or a statist for defending the police in this current culture, um, but I think this is really important for defending order in our society for fighting back against the Marxist forces that want to fundamentally destroy our society. And of course, protecting our communities, both minority communities, women, and pretty much every community around America will be affected if there is some significant federal reform of police departments that is done in the wrong way. So this can be very dangerous for all of us. Um, and that's all I have for you guys so far. We'll move into question and answers. If I didn't cover anything that you're interested in, just let me know. Great. Thank you so much, Amber. You covered a lot of the questions that I personally had, and I think you did a really good job. Um, and I do really appreciate the way that you tied in um, the Black Lives, Matter, um, Black Lives Matter agenda into the feminist movement, in that at face value, their demands or their calls to action seem very innocent, very intuitive, and straightforward. But the second you dig in um, to realize what they're actually saying or pushing for, you start to think, well, eh, there's really more baggage um, on laying on their words than what many people really realize. And another thing is that a lot of people haven't actually read the demands of Black Lives Matter. They don't even understand what it, they stand for. Um, and so we'll dive in a little bit, but... Um, since staying on the subject of the Black Lives Matter demands, one 
demand that they have is they encourage the breakdown of the family. And they encourage um, more of a community-like structure to raising children, to raising you know their youth, um, and they don't. And they really propagate the idea of a single motherhood. And in some cases, you know, single moms, they are it, you know. But um, many times too, it almost seems encouraged for the dads to not even be a part of the family. And so we see a lot of, well, when you really break it down, it's the breakdown of the nuclear family, um, particularly within the African-American community um, that leads to higher poverty, uh, higher jail or more jail time, higher violence. And so you would think that the Black Lives Matter movement would encourage a more structured family. Why do you think that they call for the destruction of the family? Do you think it's to um, kind of incre increase the, um, the dependency that a certain community has or their voting bloc has onto the Democratic Party? Or what would you say? Well, I think you, um, you touched on it when you mentioned that they want uh, children being raised more by the community. Again, that's something that comes from Marxism, where children don't really belong to the parents. They are actually part of the community. And you know, conservatives believe that the community does play a role in raising children in that civic institutions and religious institutions are important for backing up what happens at home. But all of that starts with your parents. And the parents are the number one most important thing when raising a child and making sure that they turn out okay. And as you mentioned, Fatherlessness is perhaps one of the biggest reasons um, that Black Americans tend to commit more crime or spend more time in jail because they don't have that patriarchal figure to make sure that they're being led on the right path. Um, so Black Lives Matter does this. They encourage the breakdown of the nuclear family because they want to move to a more community-based model of child rearing. But again, that has significant adverse um, consequences um, in terms of poverty, in terms of crime rates, in terms of prison time, um, and a whole host of other um, societal issues that will really prove to be beyond damaging for minority communities. And I think that's a great example of how the Black Lives Matter movement claims to be working on behalf of minority communities, but so many of the things that they advocate for will actually make those communities worse off, which shows you that it's not really about Black Lives Matter, it's about advancing this leftist progressive agenda. Right, and it, as you mentioned, it became very clear um, to anyone really paying attention to the news cycle that the left is no longer concerned or not particularly concerned with taking effective action um, uh, for police reform, um, especially when they blocked that police reform bill um, that the Republicans um, uh, brought forward and they allowed um, amendments, 21 amendments to it, and uh, the Democrats blocked it. And so one of our students asked, well, what sorts of police reform would you be in favor of? Um, and do you think police will reclaim the autonomous zones like they did in DC? Um, and how can we combat the Marxist hijacking um, that Antifa and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement participates in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll answer the second part first. Um, the autonomous zone in Seattle is supposed to be dismantled. I'm not sure if the police have actually gone in yet. Um, the fact that they waited so long is 
incredibly dangerous because these people have had time to organize and to grow their numbers and of course to arm themselves. So by waiting so long to address this, the Seattle mayor has really put police in an incredibly dangerous situation and she's all but ensured that more violence will occur there when police go in to try to dismantle that zone, which again is the exact opposite of what the defund the police and Black Lives Matter movements are calling for. They're calling for less violence, not more. And sometimes that means being proactive in your policing. Some of the reforms that I would suggest is perhaps um, introducing a federal standard on use of force. So how it currently works is every department across the country um, in various localities have their own standards on what type of force they're allowed to use when detaining suspects or responding to crimes. Um, and uh, that means that in some departments, it's actually considered acceptable to kneel on someone's back for an extended period of time or to put someone in a chokehold or kneel on their neck. And it could be very beneficial for there to be a federal standard so that when these types of incidents happen, it's more clear cut whether or not this person, this police officer, um, used that force in a justifiable manner. And the other thing I mentioned before is that I do think there can be some type of reform to police unions, whether it's giving them less power or changing the things that they're in charge of, um, perhaps giving them less means to protect officers who have been accused of having disciplinary issues or uh, um, using excessive force against suspects. Um, but I just, I personally am against um, getting rid of police unions entirely, but um, that is something that I'm amenable to. Um, it is pretty ironic how autonomous zones arm themselves, and when, especially when those people are primarily the ones that are the loudest when it comes to uh, ridding of the Second Amendment. Um, do you believe, so as we've seen through COVID, gun sales have risen. Um, do you believe that the onset of all this violence, particularly the threat of violent protests, as well as the defund the police movement, is actually aiding in the increase of gun sales to, you know, within our country? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. I've seen lines down the block for gun stores in Virginia. And it's because people are worried that the police are not going to be there to protect them anymore. Uh, this is a mindset that honestly probably should have existed before the defund the police movement because everyone who's lived in a rural community knows that police response times are very slow. And oftentimes you're already dead before the police get there, unfortunately. Um, but it's something that's really been backed up by the recent moves to really strip the police of any power they have to restore order or to respond to crime. So people are seeing that. Another part of it um, is actually from coronavirus. The increase in gun sales started when um, the government started forcing um, states to lock down or when governors were instituting draconian orders like in Michigan where you weren't allowed to buy plant seeds and make a garden in the middle of quarantine. Um, so people have been noticing significant government overreach for really the past six months now. Um, that has caused them to want to arm themselves to protect themselves from potential tyranny and also the lawlessness that's occurring with all of the riots and the protests. Right, spot on. Um, one of our former summer fellows just asked this question, and I know that many of our girls are wondering the same thing. So she says, everyone at my university says that if you aren't and that if you aren't anti-capitalist or are abolishing or for abolishing the police, you're racist. Even if you're like me and are pro-criminal justice reform, education reform, and other things that would help the black community without going against my conservative beliefs. 
Is it even worth trying to change these people's minds? And if so, how would you recommend going about doing so, um, especially when they're so hostile? So I personally think that if someone is starting a conversation by calling you racist, you're not gonna be able to change their mind. Um, that's from a place of deep hatred and it's from a place where that person has proven that they're not willing to actually have a dialogue and they just want to sling insults to try to prevent you from speaking out. Um, that is an attempt at silencing you and making you feel like if you say anything else in support of various conservative things, then you're going to be labeled a racist or worse. I think the better avenue is to just show that you're not going to be quiet. You will get normal people who agree with a lot of this um, that we're saying to um, come on your side and be more vocal if they have a leader that they can follow. A lot of people are really scared to speak out right now. Um, and it's, it's just your average everyday person who, again, still believes in capitalism, still be believes in respecting the police, believes that there are, you know, changes that could be made that can help minority communities, but they don't agree with defunding the police or um, destroying communities in the process. Those people desperately want to be able to say something, but they've been bullied for a really long time. And so it's up to people like us who are brave and have courage to be able to speak on their behalf and hopefully eventually bring some of them along for the ride. Well, Amber, we're nearing the end of our time. So I, um, I encourage all the girls listening, if uh, you come up, you know, have another question, please email me. I can always email Amber for an answer for you. But I'd like to thank you so much for taking, you know, an hour, hour out of your day, out of your Friday to speak with all of us. I know our girls really admire you. Um, they really enjoy listening to you at our CPAC luncheon um, and you are highly requested as a speaker. So thank you so much and um, we hope to have you again soon. You're welcome.